Um, today, though, I want to do something a little bit different. I, I was trying to think through when the last time we, we did this was, and I don't know in our 14 years together if we've ever done anything like what we're going to do today. So is your interest peaked? Yeah, a little bit? Okay. Well, let me tell you what we're going to do today. Today, I want to talk about this idea of missions. Okay, I want to talk about the concept of missions. Now, uh, you could come with, as, when you hear that word, you might come from a, a wide variety of backgrounds. Some of you, when I say the word missions, you come from a, a rich uh, church history, and you maybe grew up and have been in part of churches with a, with a deep uh, culture around missions. Others of you who may, might be newer to the church, you might be thinking, man, I don't really know anything about missions other than some of the negative things that I've read or heard over the years. And so... To begin, what I want to do is I want to go back to the, the most basic level by simply defining the word. I want, to, I want to make sure we're all on the same page and simply understanding what missions are. And at its core, missions refers to the intentional sharing of the gospel or the good news of Jesus. It's simply sharing the story of Jesus with people who have not heard it yet. Now, when I say that, you might be like, well, John, what do you mean people who haven't heard it yet? That hasn't everybody, clearly everybody's heard about Jesus. And the answer is, is no, or the response to that would be no. Like we take for granted this reality that in the United States of America, most people, maybe even everybody, have heard the name Jesus. But globally, there, is, there are literally billions of people alive today who have never heard the name Jesus. They have never heard the story of Jesus. They have never heard the good news, the gospel of Jesus. And so missions is simply the effort to tell people about Jesus who have never heard of Jesus, so that they can make up their own mind as they think about him and a relationship with him. Now, as this is such a broad topic and we only have a little bit of time together, there's a lot that we could talk about together today, but what I want to narrow in on and what I've titled this teaching is specifically the biblical mandate for global missions and Heartland. The team makes fun of me that I don't name my teachings very often, but when I do, they're always long and boring. And so I guess maybe there's some truth to that. But today, specifically, when we walk out of here, this is what I want you to, to at least have some concept of as it relates to missions. I want you to understand the biblical mandate for global missions, and I want you to understand something about what we're doing with regards to it here at Heartland. The best part of it is that today I'm only going to talk for about 10 more minutes, and then I'm going to introduce you to a couple individuals who are living this out with their lives, individuals that we support as a church that, that I think you should know about and you should hear their story. And so that's kind of where we're going together this morning, all right? We're all on the same page. We know where we're headed and what we're doing. Okay, let's get into it. The first thing that you need to understand about this concept of missions is that it is not a new idea. In fact, the idea or the heart behind missions goes all the way back to the very, very beginning. If you go all the way back into the very first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, we read there about a covenant, about a promise that God made with a man named Abram. And I want to read you this, this covenant that God makes with Abram. This is Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, go. Okay, I'm going to emphasize that first word. The Lord said to Abram, I want you to go from your country, from your people, from your father's household to the land that I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And here it is, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So there's three parts to this covenant that God made with this man named Abram. Number one, he wanted him to what? Go. Yeah, you're with me. He wanted him to go. He said, I want you to get up and I want you to move. I want you to leave. I want you to go to a new land. I want you to go to a new place. I want you to go to a new people. And when you get there, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your family tree multiply and expand. I will bless your ancestors, Abram. And why? Just because you're lucky? Just because you're better than everybody else? No. He said, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to the rest of the peoples of earth. Now, if he wanted to be a blessing to all the people groups of earth through Abram and his descendants, we should ask, well, in what way? What does that look like? In what way did God want to bless all the peoples on earth through Abram and his descendants? Was it financially? Did God want to give money to all the people groups on earth? No, I don't think that makes much sense. It's not really possible. Was it relationally? Did God want to bless all the peoples on earth with relationships? Is it like, Everybody gets a Jewish friend? No, I don't think so. What he meant was spiritually. He said, I'm going to give you an awareness of me. I'm going to give your descendants an understanding of who I am and how you can live with me here on this life and for all of eternity. And then I want to bless all the peoples on earth through them in the sense that I want them to know all about me as well. I want them to come into a relationship with me. I want them to understand who I am. I want them to understand life now and for all of eternity with me. And from there, the rest of the Old Testament is simply the story of the Israelites growing and expanding and being blessed, and then sometimes upholding the covenant and sometimes telling the nations about God and how good he is, but then most of the time not. Most of the time, getting very self-centered and thinking to themselves, this is great. I love it. It's such a blessing to me. I'm just going to live my life in the goodness of God, and I'm just perfectly content here at home. And throughout the Old Testament, God, like, is pulling his hair out. He's going, what are you doing? Why aren't you going? Why aren't you telling the, the, the peoples of earth? Why aren't you making my name great among the nations? What are you doing? Why are you sitting on this? And so the, the entire Old Testament is us reading this back and forth between Abram's descendants and God and him going, why aren't you going? And so eventually he has enough and he says, fine, I'm so determined to bless all the peoples of earth that I will go around you. And he sends his son Jesus. Jesus lives a life and, and he proclaims and teaches what we now call the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Jesus taught this idea that all of us have messed up in life. All of us are sinful. We've all fallen short of the standard of perfection of a holy, perfect, separated God. And, and the reality is that Jesus taught we cannot bridge that gap on our own, but the good news is, the gospel is, that we don't have to because Jesus has done it for us on our behalf. 
And that by making a decision to accept the free gift of grace that Jesus offers us, we can be forgiven and we can have that gap between us and God bridged through Jesus. And then Jesus went to the cross and he laid down his life and God raised him back to life again, conquering sin and death once and for all on behalf of anyone across the globe and across the generations who would put their faith in him and choose, yes, I want to receive your gift of grace. I want to make you the Lord of my life. I want to follow you. And I'll be baptized to celebrate that. And so... Jesus then is raised back to life, and he gathers his followers around, hundreds of followers post-resurrection, and look at the instructions that Jesus leaves with them. This is Matthew chapter 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, here it is, what's the word? Go. Go. He said, therefore, go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Does that not sound familiar? Yes, he is echoing the the call that God had given to Abram to go to make disciples of all nations. From there, the rest of the New Testament is the story of the apostles and Jesus' first disciples spreading out and going to the different nations and different people groups and sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus with them and planting churches and baptizing people and then writing letters back to those churches because they would hit church growth problems and pains and, and tensions and they would be like, well, this is how you handle that. And it was like they're explaining these things to these churches that they had planted as they were fulfilling Jesus' call to go. And then the New Testament wraps up with this, this document, this revelation that the disciple John is given. And John, near the end of his life, is given a vision of heaven and of all of eternity. And it's this powerful, rich, symbolic, like sometimes difficult to understand vision that John has given, but one part of it is so crystal clear and it is so beautiful. Look at what John sees in this vision, in this revelation he's given. Revelation 7, he writes, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, And every language, all standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And that's what brings us to us. That's what leads to us. This is why we're here today. This is our legacy. This is our heritage. We are the result of people's efforts from the last 2,000 years to go and to, to spread the gospel of Jesus with new people groups. And it has rippled down throughout generation and generation and across countries and across bodies of water and across state lines. And it has arrived here for us today in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. And this is what we're part of. 
This is our legacy. This is what we are carrying on. We have been passed the baton, and we get to carry it on for the next generation, for our community, and to the ends of the earth. And for the last 14 years, this is what we've experienced. So many of you who are here today would say, man, this is like I am that prophecy being fulfilled. I am that vision being fulfilled. Somebody invited you, and you came, and you heard the gospel. You heard the good news of Jesus, and you were like, that's me. I'm sinful. I'm broken. My life is a mess. I've like done a pretty bad job of leading my life on my own, but, but praise be to God. I get it now, and you placed your faith in Christ, and he transformed your life, and maybe you got baptized before, maybe Maybe you're going to get baptized in August, and, but you're going, this is me. This is why we exist. We literally would say our mission, the reason we exist is to help awaken our diverse community to Jesus. We exist for the calling on our lives, those of us who would say we're followers of Jesus, to take the good news of Jesus to other people. And we've gotten to experience that here so powerfully in Sun Prairie But our calling does not end with us here in Sun Prairie. The calling is for us to be a part of what God is doing among the nations. And we've been doing that. And the need is high. The need is tremendously high. And so for the sake of time, because I think some people can articulate via video better than I can articulate in the moment when I get kind of rolling on something, uh, I want to show you a two-minute video that just touches on how high the need is for this to happen today. 3,000 UUPGs, 3,000 unengaged, unreached people groups. There are literally 3,000 different groups of people who have never even heard the word Jesus Christ. Isn't that crazy? Like, don't we, don't we take for granted the accessibility or the access that we have to understanding God and how to live in life in relation to him? And so clearly the need is high. But all of us can't move to the 1040 window, right? No. And so this is where the concept of the body of Christ comes in. The Apostle Paul talks about this a lot in the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. In the letter that we call 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of of Christians, and he says, listen, you don't all have the same calling. You can't all do everything. Like, all of us as followers of Jesus have been given different gifts, different abilities, different talents, different passions, different interests, different insights, and different callings on how we can contribute to making disciples of all nations and teaching them to understand everything that Jesus taught. So we all have different roles to play, but we're all dependent on each other and we all support one another. And so today, as I said, what I want to do with the next 20 minutes, really, is introduce you to two families who have been called by the Lord to go to the other parts of the world to engage with people who have not yet understood what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus. So in uh, a couple weeks ago, I sat down with two individuals. First of all, a gentleman named Max, and then second, uh, a gentleman named Brennan. Max and his wife, Steph, and their four kids felt the Lord calling them specifically to the 1040 window and specifically to a remote people group in uh, a remote region of Iraq where they live today. They moved there in 2020, so they've been there for about two and a half years now. Uh, And then Brennan and his wife, Libby, and their daughter, Eleanor, uh, they felt God was calling them to go to uh, um, to, to Europe 
to Belgium and to plant a church there. And so they did that in two, uh, 2016. And uh, for the last six years, we've been supporting them and praying for them and lifting them up and checking in with them and just engaging with them and celebrating with them. And so what I want to do, as I said, for the next 20 minutes now is I'm going to uh, zip it, and uh, I want you to have the opportunity to hear both of these gentlemen talk about their experiences with global missions. Take a look at this. So we live among a, a small ethnic and religious minority group in Iraq uh, called the Yazidi people. So the Yazidi are not Muslim. They're, they're one of the only non-Muslim minority groups in the whole country. There's only a couple hundred thousand of them. Some say six, seven, eight hundred thousand, somewhere in there. There's not okay. a solid number, but small, right? Mm -hmm. They lived in the northwest kind of corner of Iraq. And then at the height of ISIS and the caliphate and all that kind of stuff, ISIS kind of came up from the south. And in August of 2014, uh, ISIS came up from the south and committed um, just terrible acts of genocide against them. So in a matter of a couple of days, Something like five to seven thousand men and boys were slaughtered, and about the same number, five to seven thousand women and girls were taken captive, ended up being bought and sold all over Iraq and Syria and all that kind of stuff, which is half of those women and girls are still missing today. So it's still like a reality that we that we face there. So what we're doing there now is is uh, we, we want to honestly we want to just be the hands and feet of Jesus to these people. So this genocide was their 74th recorded genocide in their people's history. And the government basically ignores them. The culture essentially ignores them. They're, they're kind of just set out into camps all by themselves and whatnot. And so we live in a little village um, of about 30 to 40,000 people. And right next to our village is a Yazidi refugee camp of about 18,000 people. And so we just live uh, among Yazidi, the Yazidi people. And we try to make friends with our neighbors and become part of that culture, part of those people, embody the gospel to them, what it means to love people well, what it means to love my wife, love our kids. And then my wife is a, a, a certified nurse midwife, so she has a clinic in the camp. So she gets to serve women and babies, all of that kind of stuff. And then we're hoping to, to see a disciple-making movement, church-planting movement among the Yazidi people. So the Yazidis historically are, are what missions organizations would classify as unreached. I mean, there's little to no Yazidi believers, and there's little to no uh, missionary work happening among the Yazidi people. And so they are completely off the radar when it comes to the gospel and the work of the gospel and anything like that. As far as we know, there's never been a Yazidi church in the history of Christianity, so yeah. 2,000 years later. And so we're trying to work towards that end. What have been some of the challenges that you've faced while being there? I'm sure there is a long list. Yeah, besides but... the heat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah you're saying, what's the temperature So uh, basically right now? May to September, it's like 110 to 115 every day, and we won't get a drop of rain in that. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's so really that's intense. a little, it's little intense. more intense than we experience here in Wisconsin. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the thing that we miss the most, which I would say is probably among the biggest challenges mm -hmm. as well, is we miss the gathering of believers. Part of being where there is no church is that there is no church. Yeah. Being there and like raising our kids, we've got four kids now, raising our kids in a place where like local church is not part of the rhythm of their life mm. simply because of the location that we've chose to live. It's just, a especially for a local pastor, right? Mm -hmm. You can probably test this, yeah. like what would that mean to raise my kids outside yeah. of the rhythm of the local church? Like 
Sunday, Wednesday, at least for me growing up, that was the rhythm of our life. And just all the relationships that come out of that, all the support that comes out of that, all of the, mm -hmm. the worship and prayer and hearing the word and the, all of that kind of stuff that flows from that, to be in a place where that doesn't really exist has been, has been challenging. Uh, but it's also pushed us honestly into some beautiful things of trying to connect with the kind of the global body of Christ in different ways and, uh, and still to kind of find that sense of, of belonging. But you know, there's, there's life challenges of, like I said, heat and little to no AC at times. And we've gone two weeks multiple times with no hot water, you know, uh, we've run out of water at least twice because uh, we get water every couple of days from the government in our tanks up on our roof. And if you go through it or if you miss when the water comes, like you just have to wait three or four more days. So that's happened at least once or twice. One of our fundamental beliefs is just as a couple is that, and as a family, is that one of the places that we can always find Jesus is we can always find him among the poor and the broken. Whatever you do to these, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the imprisoned, the oppressed, whatever you do to them, you're doing to me because Christ is there. So whatever struggles we go through, challenges, what we always try and recenter our hearts around is this idea that the struggle is real, but the presence of Christ there is more real. Mm -hmm. And he's called us to a place that is difficult, sure, in some ways, but he's called us to a place where he is. And what greater thing could we ask for than to be where Christ is, to be where he is working and moving. And, uh, and so all of those struggles and whatever, I mean, we come back here and there's struggles here, you know, like, it's just universal. They just look different. You know, you just sweat inside and outside there versus just outside <laughs> here, you know, because you can have sure. AC. How about the uh, flip side of that? What have been some of the winds that you've experienced or some of the things that you've seen God do while you were there? So in our village, like I said, there's about 40,000, call it 60,000 with the camp. Pretty early on, about two months after we got there, we got a knock on the door one day and it was a pregnant Yazidi woman. And she'd heard that this American midwife had moved in and she was pregnant and had some concerns. And uh, this woman spoke English. She was a translator. And so we were actually able to talk with her because uh, we didn't know any language at that point. So we're sitting down and talking and Steph, my wife, is answering some questions. And we get talking after a while and she confides in us that she's actually a believer. And she tells us there's eight to 12 secret believers in our village. So 50, 60,000 people, maybe about 10 believers there. Wow. Her husband doesn't know, her kids don't know, her in-laws don't know, and all these other believers, none of their families know. Um, it's all completely underground. Opened up to her and I said, well, actually, we're, we're pastors back in the United States. She said, you're a pastor? I said, yeah. First word out of her mouth, she said, will you teach us, if we come to your house, will you teach us about communion and about baptism? Because we've never been baptized and we've never taken communion and we want to, and we need someone to teach us. And so we start meeting with this small group of believers. This was last summer. We did this through the summer and talking about communion, talking about baptism, was able to connect uh, some of them with a local pastor about 45 minutes away, get them there in the kind of the cover of night and got baptized secretly in his house in, their, in, in the bathtub, in the pastor's bathtub. And there's another... Uh, story I'll tell. These two girls, their sisters, they were orphaned by their, uh, by their mother. So their dad had died and their mom a number of years ago had just walked out on them. 
and so left them to kind of fend for themselves. They're in their 20s. And they were translators for another organization in our area. And one morning, that organization, they were doing a little kind of Bible devotional and started reading, just reading the scripture of the prophet Isaiah, where, where he says, uh, can a nursing mother forget her children? Even if so, I, the Lord, will never forget you. And here's these two, two girls in their 20s, orphaned by their mother, and they just start weeping under the, the love of Jesus. And they pull the person aside after and say, this is what your God is like. We want to follow him. And wow. gave, their, gave their life to Jesus just wow. like that. And so we're, these are the people that we're meeting with and trying to build relationship with and help and teach the Bible and all that kind of stuff. And just seeing the seeds of, again, had nothing to do with us, had nothing to even do with the workers that were there. It was just the public reading of scripture. Yep, the prophet Isaiah, thousands of years later, saving these two, uh, these two orphan sisters. And, um, and so we're seeing the Lord do all kinds of fun stuff in our area. And, um, and just how we can continue to partner with what he's doing. That's the question that we're always asking is, okay, Lord, what are you doing? Like Jesus, he gives the, the analogy in John 3 the, of the wind blowing, like the wind blows. And our prayer is always, how can we be a sail that just catches the wind? We're not there to create the wind. We're not there to create the movement. How do we just be a sail that catches it so we can ride wherever the wind of the Spirit is taking us? So that's, a, that's always the question that we're asking. And you're working a little bit on a translation of the Bible into their language, correct? Yeah, yeah. So the, the two kind of projects that we have going, so my wife is a certified nurse midwife. I mentioned that she's got her clinic and actually has delivered a couple of babies for refugee women in her home and all that kind of stuff. And we're working on getting government approval to open a birth center in the, in the camp because these women have no access to any kind of care at all. So that's one side. And the other side is, so I mentioned that these believers, there's never been a Yazidi church. There's also not um, Yazidi scriptures. So the dialect of Kurdish that all of these refugees speak, they have never had a single word of scripture translated into their language. And that gets even more challenging because that dialect is completely oral. So they have no alphabet. They have no script. There's no books in the dialect that we're learning, like that my family are learning. There's no books that we can go read. There's, no, there's nothing. It's completely oral language. And so we are working with a couple of other missionaries in our area and a translation organization to actually produce the first ever translation of the scriptures for these people. So I think beginning of next year, we'll actually begin the Gospel of John and begin translating the Gospel of John. We just have produced the first a couple of stories from the Old Testament and done kind of a test run and had a Yazidi man who's a believer be the voice of the scripture and translated. And we just got the first recordings of those actually a couple of weeks ago and they all went really, really well. And so we're trying to figure out how do we do this? How do we do it safely? All that kind of stuff. And so we'll be producing an oral, at least an oral, maybe a written as well, first ever translation of the scriptures for these people. So that would be, I, I think, actually probably my main work for the next decade, probably something like that is actually working with translators to translate the scriptures into their language for the, yeah, for the first time ever. Well, that's incredible. And I think, I think it's uh, safe for me to speak on behalf of so many people in our church that uh, we're so grateful that you and Steph have taken that step of faith. And I think for many of us, we look at what you have done and may not necessarily um, feel that same call that God has so clearly given to the two of you, but we're so grateful that you have been obedient to it and faithful to it and have taken that step of faith. And we're so grateful that we get to 
partner in some small way yeah, yeah. in uh, supporting the two of you and what God is doing through you there. And so for people who would love to hear more and sure. follow up and get more details and more stories and get more connected, maybe they want to support you directly. Sure. Yeah. How can people get connected with you that way? Yeah. Well, and I love that because the, whenever the, the New Testament in particular, I'm thinking, talks about what we would call missions, it does so in the language of partnership. It's yeah. those who go and those who send those who sow and those who reap, those who receive and those who give. There's always, there's, it's never a one-man show, one-person show, right, whatever. Yeah. It's always this, this partnership. And it always goes, the text seems to always go out of its way to talk about equal, equal reward, so to speak, for each of those parts, that it's, it's not one greater than the other. It's that how, I mean, what does Paul say in Romans? How can anyone even go unless someone sends them? Implying that actually the sender is more important <laughs> than the goer. Oh, okay. um, because yeah. like you can't even go without that person. You're dependent on, on them. And so we fully realize that we're completely dependent in that sense on the generosity of people and the prayers of people and churches saying like, hey, we, we don't have the, the sense of calling in that same way to Iraq, but that isn't really the issue. That's not the point. It's how do, we, how do we engage with what the Lord is doing both here locally, obviously, and then globally? How do we, how do we sow our seed so that uh, we can see the gospel flourish? So how people can find us, partner, partner with us, the easiest way to find out what we're doing is just online on our website, uh, thethomasfam.com, uh, or on Instagram, uh, thethomasfam6 now, because we just had another kid. So we changed that to six, <laughs> so thethomasfam6. We do some writing and podcasting and stuff like that that you can find online. And uh, as projects continue to, to come up and as we continue to get more into what it is that we feel like the Lord is calling us to do there, all that information will be there. So. Awesome. Well, we'll link to that stuff as well so people have yeah. access to that. But thank you for coming in today. Oh, thanks, thanks for, for sitting yeah. down and yeah. talking with me. Enjoy. We're excited to see what God continues to do through the six of you and Iraq. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it. What's the culture of Belgium like? What what is life in this European country look like? They so not not in a negative sense, but socialism is a very big principle and and across Europe in Belgium too. It's a social responsibility, um, looking out for the well-being of others, caring for others. But it is more of a disconnected sense. It's not in a personal sense that they're going to go and care for somebody. It's very much. I pay my taxes, that means that people get taken care of. They value quantity, or sorry, quality over quantity. So okay. when you sit with people, it will be a two or three hour affair, which now we absolutely love. Now the American 30 minute dinner is really, <laughs> it's difficult for us because it does allow us to have gospel conversations. So that's a helpful point in the culture, but they're also very, very private. They have a lot of hedges, a lot of fences on their properties, very tall. And while that is a physical thing, it's very much a representation of the internal reality for them as well. So when you do build relationships, you really get in deeply. And a lot of people are very lonely. I mean, magazines literally write articles on how to make friends because people are so lonely and isolated, they just don't even know how. How much of the Belgian population would be considered Christian? Uh, evangelical would be about 1.3%. 1.3% of the entire population. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there is a deep need for people to hear the gospel and to know about Absolutely. Jesus. Then. And talk a little bit about the transition from the United States to Europe and yeah. to moving across the globe. One of the big pieces that was helpful for us is 
that we started actually in an internship phase. So for the first three years of our life in Belgium was under um, some mentors that had been missionaries for like over 20 years. Wow. And so they provided a really soft landing for us in Belgium. It is still Western. So there was familiarities without a doubt, but you can also still experience culture shock. But the transition for our family was pretty smooth. The Lord was really gracious to us. We we went in expecting to to adjust and to change. And so those preparations mentally did us a lot of help to enter into the, the, a new culture like Belgium. What did you do then at the end of the internship? How did that transition go? Well, the funny part is, is when we got there, I said to, to Libby, my wife, I said, okay, I, I don't want to stay in Belgium. I want to go to the next country after that. <laughs> he very much actually gave us a love for the people of Belgium, for the language that we have learned and all these different steps. And I could just see the Lord's hand and having us actually stay. And so our mentors who had been in Africa previously uh, for like 20 years had felt the call to go back and the church wasn't ready yet to be independent. And so he asked if I would step into the lead pastor role to lead it towards autonomy. And so I felt the Lord leading me to say yes. Since January, 2020, really bad timing, but I stepped into the lead <laughs> pastor role and uh, we've been I've been functioning that way since and trying to mature the disciples. And how has that been trying to lead a church over the last two years and with COVID restrictions and shutdowns and all of that? Europe gave a really unique perspective to COVID um, because we, we, we didn't have you know freedom of religion as much as we have here per se, or just more guaranteed liberties. Um, it's, it's more restrictive. So lockdowns, we had police in the streets ticketing you if you were out. It was pretty harsh. And so we didn't have the liberty to just open our doors anyways. We had to completely abide by every rule, which isn't a problem necessarily, but it did mean that we were apart from each other as a church for over six months, two different times. The cool part was is because there is no Christian culture culture in Belgium, Christians were so hungry and so desperate to come back to church. And there was a real joy that first day that we were back. So it was hard, but it was also really joyous to come back together. And just we felt the real definition of what it meant to be church on that first Sunday back together. Even going back before that, over the last, uh, I guess it would be about five years now that you've been yeah. there, what have been some of the other challenges as well for you and for Libby and uh, your daughter as you made that move and that change and have said yes to God in this way? Man, that, that's it's a tough question because honestly, we do feel really at peace. We do really feel at home. There, we miss family. Um, sure. And before COVID, our, our families could come once, twice a year, and that really would bridge the gap for us. There, there are challenges in ministry, uh, working with people and shepherding hearts and desiring them to, to find freedom and joy in Christ. And that is sometimes a, a long process. But as far as the culture and living in Belgium, we really, in fact, we being back in the States right now, we actually find it more difficult to be here than it is in Belgium. I, I, I honestly just think the Lord has wired our hearts and our minds for the place he's called us to. And that's a real joy. And we, we've just we've been allowed to adapt. So now it's America that seems like a foreign country to us versus Belgium. Wow, that's cool. And now that you're back and the church is, is open, mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, you have also had some challenges <laughs> yeah. with visas and the government yeah. and 
Uh, talk a little bit about that. For the first three years of our ministry, we had a visa. Um, it, it actually said missionary on my visa, so they knew exactly what we were. We were there without any restrictions on, on that front. But they restructured some of their laws uh, in the last couple of years, particularly part of a European Union movement of, of law, but also just they, they experienced some really tough things when it came to extreme extreme terrorism, connected with religion, not Christian, but because it was connected with foreign-funded religious workers, they cut all religious workers off. So we we have, for the last two years, been, been trying to find a different visa that we can get. And that's a, ultimately what forced us back right now since Easter is the fact that we lost our visa and they have asked us to, to leave the country. So, and we're now working to get a different visa to get back to the country, hopefully by the end of the year. And what's happening with the church while you're uh, in the States. So I, I try to be as connected as possible. I still try to be the shepherd as much as I can be, which I have found to be much more challenging and <laughs> sad at some on some levels sure. because shepherding at hearts online is it's just not the same. Mm-hmm. And so I do still teach once a month just because we have a pretty busy travel calendar while we're back in the States. Um, and we still do Bible studies and stuff like that online that we can. And then I have, thankfully, a lot of good ministry friends who either in Amsterdam or in Belgium, who are also church planners or in Germany, who are able to come in in the weeks that I cannot teach and provide teaching for them. So they're still gathering. They're still being the church, which is really encouraging to my heart that they are still, that it's not rising and falling on me because any leader doesn't want it to rise and fall on them. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. That's true. Whether you're in Belgium or the United States or anywhere else. Healthy, yeah, healthy ministry in that sense. What have been some of the cool things that you've seen happen or people that have come to know Christ or any stories of, of just what God's doing through the, through the ministry? We have the opportunity every year to actually have our own church summer camp. So we've been able to do that. It's been part of like the history of the church as long as they can remember. So we do that every year. And usually every year we see about five kids put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so that's always a real joy. Yeah, for sure. Last summer, we were able to baptize 10 people cool. from multiple cultures. I mean, we had an Iranian that we were able to baptize who never had the gospel in Iran, but now he's in Belgium and received the gospel. There's one woman in particular, um, her name is Deirdre, and she's from Ireland. And she was that stereotypical Irish woman. And she'll say that herself. I'm not saying anything she wouldn't say. Sure. But we saw her put her faith in Jesus in January 2020. And just to watch her be in pretty some harsh environments, even we could say sometimes abusive environments, but just cling to Jesus and that he satisfies her completely. It's been so joyous to watch the fruit of the Spirit be just blossoming in her life. I have a, a friend who's a, a, who is Belgian himself, and he is a church planter. And he said, I would just so strongly encourage you to, to relay that even as a Belgian church planter, I, he says, we need outside help. Without outside help, the church in Belgium will fall apart. Even even the Christians there recognize they're glad that we're there, which not every country is that way. Some of them are very prideful in, in, in seeing foreigners come to bring the gospel, but Belgians definitely embrace us and are thankful for us. And so for people who would say, we should focus here and let Belgians lead Belgians to Christ, even a Belgian church planner would disagree with that American, and he would say, no, we we need you to send people. We need you to support. We need you to come. Yeah. We need you to bring the gospel. They really do. There are Christians in Belgium, but it's like a remnant. And then what would the vision be or what's the dream? You know, if you could look 20, 30, 40 years down the road, what would 
What are you praying for? My prayer is that within our own church that we can mature all the believers, not just future pastors, but all believers, so that even if a pastor walks away, the church doesn't fall apart because the believers will be mature enough that I own their role as, as, as the church themselves enough that the church would stand. But also then to train other elders um, besides myself. And my hope and goal is that we would plant two different times before I would step away because I want the DNA of planting to be in every church that we ever plant. Because if I just run off the first time, well, that was the church planner's dream. That's not what we do. But I want it to be the DNA of the church because I think that is the hope of the gospel going forth is multiplying churches that that encourage and equip believers to keep doing it and doing it again. For Heartlanders who would love to hear more or follow your family and the church, uh, what would be the best way for them to yeah. do that? So we do have a website that gives you connections to all the things that we do, social media and stuff. Uh, which is crosslink.church. So it's pretty simple. You can find us there. As a family, we really appreciate hearing from people, just text messages, hey, we just prayed for you. Even if I don't know you, it still means the world to us. Sure. Because usually the Lord brings us in at those dark moments, those tough moments in ministry, and they can be super encouragement stuff. Absolutely, yeah. Anything else that you would want to share with the Heartland family? There would be about three things. One, I would say that Europe is in desperate need of the gospel. And that's not something that we always recognize as Americans, uh, because in some sense, the gospel came from Europe to the U.S. or to a lot of other countries, but Europe needs the gospel desperately. Two is that it is very slow. Um, and so it is faithfulness, it is endurance, and we need prayer on those two fronts, that we would have energy and strength and perseverance to keep going in those relationships. Because my neighbors, you know, we've been witnessing to them for all five years we've been there, and there's almost more coldness to it now than when we first arrived. But the third thing I'd say is Europe, um, revival in Europe is possible. We do see the small amount of believers that are there, that are gathering, growing in Christ, and we do believe that the Lord will bear fruit. So Europe needs the gospel. It is slow to see revival, but it, revival is definitely possible. Well, we'll join you in praying for that and look forward to seeing more of what God does Thanks through you guys. We so appreciate your prayer and your support and making it all possible for us. Isn't that cool? Yeah? Yeah. You can clap for that. Aren't you so glad that, that God's heart is for all people, right? That nobody is left out. Aren't you so glad that Brennan and Libby and Max and Steph have been obedient to God's call in their life to take their families overseas? Aren't you so glad that God didn't call you to Iraq, right? <laughs> 115. Um, if you want to follow along, if you want to get connected with either or both of those families, if you want to know more about what they're doing, uh, if you head to our website, weareheartland.us, on the main page there, when you scroll down to the 411 section, kind of the announcement section from this weekend, you'll see links to both of their families' websites. From there, you can get into their social media and email addresses, phone numbers, all that stuff. If you want to get engaged, all that will be on our website as it should be as of today. And um, with that said, thanks for being here. I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. We'll see you next Sunday as we bring summer at Heartland to a close. We'll see you then.